Now tonight, our topic is apostolic authority in the Pope. But before we can properly understand the nature of apostolic authority and the role of the Pope, we need to understand the nature and role of the church. So we need to revisit last week's talk for a few minutes because tonight's topic builds on some of the principles we established last week from Scripture regarding one church. So if you were here last week, this first few minutes should be a, a good little review for you. The first principle I want to mention is the first one we established last week, that Jesus founded one church. As Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 18, and on this rock I will build my church. He did not say I will build my churches. He used the word church, singular, one, one church. The second principle I want to discuss is that Jesus established an authoritative church, a church which can speak authoritatively regarding the truth. Last week we talked about several passages from the Gospel of John regarding the truth. John chapter 8 verse 32, chapter 14 verse 6, and chapter 18 verse 37. And I'll read one of those. In John 8:32, Jesus says, And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth will make you free or set you free. The truth shall save you, in other words, set you free from sin. To know the truth, then, is critical for us as Christians. To be saved, to reach heaven, we need to know the truth. So where do we find this truth? Well, where do we as Christians look for the truth? For the Christian, in other words. What is the pillar and bulwark of the truth? Everyone who was here last week should know the answer to that question. For the Christian, the pillar and bulwark of the truth is the Bible, right? No. Good. You were listening last week. The Bible itself tells us that the pillar and bulwark of the truth is what? The church. Absolutely. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 in your Bibles. First letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 15. The Apostle Paul writing says the following. I am writing these instructions to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Paul says that the church, not scripture, is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. So 1 Timothy 3.15 tells us that the church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. In other words... When you go looking for truth, look to the church. And in order to decide on matters of truth, in order to fulfill its role as the pillar and bulwark of the truth, the church has to have authority. Now turn in math to Matthew chapter 18 in your Bibles. Chapter 18 of the Gospel of Matthew, starting at verse 15. In Matthew 18, verse 15, and following reads as follows. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every word may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even 
to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, throw him out. Notice very carefully what this passage does not say. It does not say that we should consult Scripture to decide the dispute. It says to tell it to the church. The final authority here is the church. And see how it says that if he refuses to listen even to the church. So here we see Scripture very plainly telling us that the church is indeed a church with authority. If the church is to speak authoritatively to the world on matters of faith and morals, it has to have authority. So our second principle tonight is the church founded by Jesus Christ is an authoritative church. It has the authority from God to decide disputes on matters of faith and morals. Not on matters of physics or biology or archaeology, faith and morals. For many non-Catholic Christians, however, the church does not have this kind of authority. For them, the church is this invisible entity made up of all true believers, regardless of what denomination they are in. The various churches or denominations here on earth, such as the Baptist Church, Episcopalian Church, Presbyterian Church, and so forth, are simply congregations of people who come together to worship and to fellowship. But they are not the church. This idea of the church being invisible precludes the church from having any real authority. After all, if the church is invisible, how can it make authoritative decisions on matters in the visible world? For the Catholic Christian, however, we believe that the church is both visible and invisible, that it has both body and soul, so to speak. The church is the body of Christ. We read that in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 and elsewhere. The church is the fullness of Christ. We read that in Ephesians 5, verse 23. Jesus is the head of the body. Jesus has both body and soul. He has a physical dimension and a spiritual dimension. So it only makes sense that the church, which is his body, has both body and soul. That it has both a physical dimension and a spiritual dimension. So to say that the church is merely spiritual, that it is merely this invisible unity of all believers, that it has a soul but not a body, doesn't make good scriptural sense. Principle number three, the church is a visible church and it is characterized by doctrinal unity in the areas of faith and morals. And again, as we saw last week in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father at the Last Supper in these words. This is verses 22 and 23 from John 17. The glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them. And he's talking about all of his followers throughout time, not just the apostles. That they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and thou and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that thou hast sent me. The unity that Jesus is talking about here cannot be an invisible unity of all believers 
It has to be a visible unity if the world is to see it and know about it. The church has to be a visible church. And listen to what Scripture says, has to say about the visible unity within the church. From Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the company of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no dissensions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul is appealing for unity, not some kind of spiritual unity of all believers, but a real and tangible physical unity. And again in John 17, Jesus prayed to the Father that we, his followers, be one as he and the Father are one. And as I asked last week, does God the Father believe, for example, in infant baptism, but God the Son does not? No, they agree on matters of faith and morals as well as everything else. So for Christians to be one as the Father and Son are one, we should have 100% unity of doctrine. Okay then, to sum up what I've said so far, number one, Jesus founded a church, one church. The church is authoritative. It speaks with authority on matters of faith and morals. And number three, the church is a visible church. And one of its characteristics must be doctrinal unity in the areas of faith and morals. Now, the question, why is it so important to establish the authoritative nature of the church? Why is it so important that the church has this authority? Well, as I showed last week and as I alluded to earlier, we need an authoritative church if we are going to be able to know the truth that will set us free. So we don't have to guess at what is or is not true in matters of faith and morals. So that we don't have to guess at what is good and what is bad doctrine. With an authoritative church, we don't have to guess. We can know the truth with certainty in matters of faith and morals. And let me give you another example of why it is so important to have an authoritative church. If the church doesn't have authority, then the Bible doesn't have authority either. Think about it for a minute. As Catholics, as Christians, we believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. In other words, that the Bible, when properly understood, contains no errors. Inerrant. It is the inspired word of God, and God doesn't make mistakes. But how do we know that the Bible is inspired? How do we know that it truly comes from God? How do we even know which books are supposed to be in the Bible? Because the church tells us so. There is no list in the Bible of which books are supposed to be in there. Last week we talked about how there was no list in the Bible of which doctrines are essential or non-essential. Well, there is also no list in the Bible of the books that are supposed to be in the Bible. Do you understand the consequences of that for people who believe in the Bible and the Bible alone? Since the Bible does not have a list in it of which books are supposed to be in the Bible, we have to rely on a source other than the Bible 
a non-biblical source to tell us which books are inspired of God and which are not. And what do you think that source might be? The church. The Bible, as we Catholics have it today, did not become officially set until more than 350 years after the death of Jesus Christ. And there was no such thing as a Protestant Bible until almost 1,500 years after the death of Christ. Our Old Testaments are different, but Catholic and Protestant alike have the exact same New Testament in their Bibles. But again, for the first 350 years of Christianity, the New Testament as we have it today did not exist. It wasn't put together like it is now. It wasn't as if there were just these 27 books that everybody in the entire world knew were inspired of God. Uh-uh. There were quite a few other books that people claimed to be inspired. Quite a few other books that people thought should be in Scripture. Partial list includes the Acts of Peter, the Acts of Paul, the Acts of John, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Kerygma of Peter, the Acts of Andrew, the Acts of Thomas, the Apocalypse of Paul, the Gospel of Thomas, the Apocalypse of Thomas, and many others. Also, some of the books that are in the New Testament were very much disputed as to whether or not they were inspired of God and should be included in Scripture. Some of these were the book of James, the book of Hebrews, the second letter of Peter, the book of Revelation, and a couple of others. It wasn't until the Synod of Rome, a gathering of, of clergy in Rome, which I believe was somewhere around the year 382 A.D., that the church officially pronounced on the canon of Scripture. And the canon of Scripture is simply the list of the books in the Bible. It's a, a table of contents, if you will. And in 393 A.D., a gathering of bishops in North Africa at the Council of Hippo also made an official declaration on what was and was not to be considered Scripture. Same list as the Synod of Rome decided upon. And the Council of Hippo's decision was ratified by another gathering of bishops at the Council of Carthage in 397 A.D. The decisions of these councils were then ratified by the Pope. That's how we have the books in the Bible that we have. The Catholic Church decided the matter. 46 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Martin Luther, some 1,100 plus years later, threw out seven books of the Old Testament. As Catholics, we always hear we added seven books. We didn't do that. Martin Luther threw out seven books of the Old Testament on his own authority, which is how the Protestant Bible came into being, with only 39 books in the Old Testament. So, if the church does not have authority then you could not attribute any authority to the Bible because we would have no way of knowing exactly what the Bible is. And even if we had the Bible, we would have no way of knowing whether or not it was inspired without the testimony of the church. Every Christian today who accepts the 27 books of the New Testament that the Catholic Church decided upon back in the late 4th century agrees with Catholics regarding the authority of the church whether they realize it or not, and most of them don't realize it. Most Christians, Catholic or non-Catholic, don't know the history of how we got the Bible. Many, many Christians have never even considered the question, 
where did the Bible come from? Or how do we know the Bible is true? Most people just accept from their pastor or their parents or whoever that the Bible is true and that it came from God. But the answer to both of those questions is the church. Where did we get the Bible? From the church. How do we know the Bible is true? Because the church tells us so. That's just one more example of why it is so important for us to establish the authoritative nature of the church. Now, let's turn to the question of what exactly is the nature of the church's authority and start getting into the topic of tonight. Probably everyone in here would say that all authority inside and outside of the church comes from God. If you say that, you're right. Scripture tells us that very plainly. So the authority of the church is God's authority, plain and simple. But is there a particular type of authority that we talk about in regards to the church? Well, we can find the answer to that question in the creed we recite every Sunday. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Apostolic authority. The authority of the apostles as given to them by Jesus Christ who was himself given authority by God the Father. And what authority did Jesus give the apostles? We'll turn to Matthew 28, verse 18. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 18 and 19. Quote, And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And turn over a few pages to the Gospel of John. John chapter 20, verse 21. John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus speaking to the apostles on the night of his resurrection. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, and how did the Father send him? With full authority in heaven and on earth. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. So again, we see in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, has been given to him. Who gives authority to Jesus? God the Father is the only one who can. And we further see in John 20 that Jesus sends the apostles out as the Father has sent him. How has the Father sent him? With all authority in heaven and on earth. In other words, apostolic authority is the authority of God the Father himself as given to Jesus Christ, who then passed it on to the apostles. So principle number four, the authority of the church is apostolic in nature. It comes from God the Father through Jesus Christ, through the apostles. Now we're getting somewhere. God the Father sends Jesus, God the Son, to earth with full authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus, just before he ascends back into heaven, sends out the apostles with this very same authority. In other words, when you heard the apostles pronounce on matters of faith and morals, you were hearing Jesus Christ himself. Listen to what scripture says in Luke 10, verse 16. He who hears you, hears me. And he who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. 
He who hears you, hears me. And he who rejects you, rejects me. Jesus cannot identify himself any more closely with the apostles than he does in this scripture passage. This is a very powerful scripture passage. But that was when Jesus was alive, some people might say, and he was still with the apostles. What assurance do we have that this was still true, that the apostles still spoke with Jesus' authority after Jesus ascended into heaven? Well, in John 14, verses 16 and 17, we have our answer. It says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another paraclete to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, you know him. He dwells with you and will be in you. The apostles received the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 26 of John 14, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then in John 16, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will guide you into all the truth. Jesus ascends into heaven, and then the Father sends the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name to be with the apostles and to guide them unto all truth as they go out to teach all nations. So the apostles were able to teach on faith and morals without error because they were guided by the Holy Spirit. In other words, they had the charism or the gift of infallibility. After all, the Holy Spirit doesn't make mistakes. And I want to talk for a moment here on the meaning of the word infallible in Catholic doctrine. If a person is infallible, it doesn't mean that they can't commit a sin. If a person is infallible, it doesn't mean that they can never make a mistake. If a person is infallible, it doesn't mean that they will always teach what they should. They might remain silent. In Catholic theology, if a person is infallible, it simply means that God will prevent that person from teaching error in the areas of faith and morals. Infallibility has nothing to do with mathematics, biology, physics, or anything outside, else outside of faith and morals. Infallibility is what is known as a negative protection. It simply prevents error from being taught. So principle number five, apostolic authority is an authority that is characterized by the gift of infallibility in the areas of faith and morals. In the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, if you were here last week, you remember me reading this little story about an Ethiopian who was reading from the book of Isaiah. In chapter 8, verses 30 and 31, it says, So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Scripture is very plainly telling us that we need a guide to understand Scripture correctly. And wouldn't God give us an infallible guide to guide us into the truth of his word? 
And listen to this passage in 1 John. This is one I did not mention last week. If you turn in your Bibles to, to the first letter of John, chapter 4, verse 6, quote, We are of God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and he who is not of God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You might read that sometime, just fly right on through it. But this one is deep. You need to stop every now and then and just meditate on a sentence or two. Because John is telling us here that you can tell who is or is not of God by seeing who does or does not listen to us. The people sending that letter, John and, and the other leaders in the church person was of God, was of God, not by consulting scripture, not by making a personal profession of faith in this instance, but by listening to a man or group of men, the apostles and their successors. As it says in 1 Peter 1 verse 12, these men are those who, quote, preach the good news to you through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The apostles preached with the authority of God the Father is given to them by Jesus Christ himself. And they were aided in using this authority by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. In other words, they taught infallibly. Now, the next principle that I want to establish, and the last one before I speak directly about the Pope, is the principle of apostolic succession. Principle number six, the apostles passed on their authority the authority of Jesus Christ to other men who then passed on that authority to still other men who followed them. Jesus said to the apostles, and this is back in Matthew 28 again, verses 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. A few things to note about this particular passage. Number one, the apostles are commanded to make disciples of all nations. All nations. All peoples. Everywhere in the world. And to enable them to do this, Jesus gives them all authority in heaven and on earth. But for the apostles the last of whom died 60 to 70 years after Jesus' death, this simply was not possible. So in order for Jesus' command to make any sense, he must have meant it not only for the apostles, but for those who were to take the place of the apostles. And those who took the place of the apostles had to have the same authority as was given to the apostles. How else could they make disciples of all nations? So the apostles can go and make disciples of all nations because of apostolic succession. They live through their successors. Their authority lives through their successors. Another passage we mentioned last week was 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, which says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. It doesn't say anything about apostles being appointed only for the first century church. God has appointed in the church 
first apostles. The church is still with us. Therefore, there must still be apostles in the church. And again, these apostles, these successors of the first apostles, must still have the apostolic authority that was entrusted to the original twelve. Apostolic succession. The second thing to note about Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. How could Jesus be with the apostles to the end of the age if the apostles did not live to the end of the age? Again, they were all dead within 60 or 70 years of Jesus' death. They did not live to the end of the age. But their successors still live and will continue to live until the end of the age. So Jesus can be with them, with the apostles, through their successors, apostolic succession. And the third thing to note about that passage in Matthew 28 is that the mission of the apostles is a teaching mission. Therefore, the mission of the church is a teaching mission. Jesus did not say, go and write the scriptures and let everyone read them and decide for themselves what is true. No, he said, go and teach. Teach what? All that he has commanded them. Now, let's, take, let's look at the first passage of scripture which gives us an example of apostolic succession. And that's chapter 1 of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26. In those days, Peter stood up among the brethren and said, Brethren, concerning Judas, who was guide to those who arrested Jesus, he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. It is written in the book of Psalms, His office let another take. And in the Protestant King James Version, it says his bishopric let another take. His bishopric. His office, or bishopric, let another take. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord went about, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Barsabbas and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, who knows the hearts of all men, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was enrolled with the eleven apostles. First of all, Peter states the necessity of replacing Judas, of having another take his office. This is very important to understand. The apostles held an office the office of bishop. Listen to 1 Timothy 3.1. The saying is sure, if anyone aspires to the office of bishop, the office of bishop, the same office our bishops hold today. This means that if an office holder dies, another should always be appointed to fill the office. It connotes the principle of succession. You can't have a vacant office. If our president dies, we get a new president. The vice president, same thing. The governor, the secretary of state. When the apostles died, they had to have successors appointed to fulfill, to fill their office. 
the apostles were the holders of the highest offices in God's family, which is the church. So when Judas turned away and then died, they appointed another to take his place, to take his office. The same happened with all the apostles. When they died, others were appointed to take their office. The apostles were the first bishops. They appointed or ordained others bishops as well. In other words, as the church grew, they continually created new offices. It didn't just remain the original 12. They created new offices of bishops to meet the growing demands of the church. And they ordained men to fill these offices. Where else can we see apostolic succession in action? We can see it very clearly in Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, two bishops he had appointed. In 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul says, This charge I commit to you, Timothy, my son. This language, this language of sonship connotes what? Paul, as we shall see in a minute, is passing on authority to Timothy as a father passes on authority to his son. In other words, as an inheritance, an inheritance that does not pass away. This inheritance then would one day be passed on to Timothy's successors. We see, in this lang we see this language in several places in Paul's letter to Timothy and in his letter to Titus. Titus 1, verse 4, To Titus, my true child in a common faith. And Paul writes others, letting them know how they are re to regard Timothy. In 1 Corinthians 4, 17, Therefore I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. In other words, Timothy was sent with the full authority of Paul. And to carry this further, we can see that Paul passed on authority as a rule of faith. In other words, the authority Jesus gave to Paul did not die with Paul. Paul passed it on and expected those who received it from him to pass it on to others. And Paul expected Christians to obey these men who received this authority. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1 in your Bibles, verses 13 and 14. And again, all of this is important to show the apostolic succession to show that the church's authority today comes from the church's authority in the first century, which came from the apostles, which came from Jesus. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Guard the truth which has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit. Notice here, Paul was the one who entrusted the truth to Timothy. But how authoritative was Paul's authority? How authoritative was this passing on? Paul identifies it with the Holy Spirit. This truth that was entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the truth which has been entrusted to you. And then in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, And what you have heard from me before many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy is to appoint or ordain others as he himself has been ordained. And right here in this one passage, we see four generations in the line of apostolic succession. Quote, what you, 
Timothy, have heard from me, Paul, Paul was the original, then Timothy, before many witnesses entrust to faithful men, third generation, who will teach others also, fourth generation, or maybe even more. Four generations of apostolic succession right there in that passage. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Paul telling Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, that you might amend what was defective and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. What kind of position is he appointing men to? tells us in verse 7, we see that these elders are actually bishops. For a, quote, for a bishop, as God's steward, must be blameless. Titus is appointing or ordaining bishops. He has been given authority and he is likewise ordaining others with the same authority. And as we can see from scripture, this authority includes the authority to teach, which is the mission of the church. 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 13. Command and teach these things. Attend to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, to teaching. Timothy and Titus are told to command and teach. Charge others not to teach different doctrine, appoint elders, and to guard the deposit of faith, to guard the truth, and to pass it on to others. How was this authority passed on from the apostles to their successors? Well, we see in 2 Timothy 1.6, quote, Hence I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of hands. And we see that again in 1 Timothy 4.14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophetic utterance, when the elders laid their hands upon you. The elders, again, are bishops. In other words, this authority from Paul, from the elders or bishops, was passed on in a formal ceremony of laying on of hands. And that's very interesting, because that's exactly what we do today and have done for the last 2,000 years. The apostles, as fathers, pass on not just their teaching, but their teaching authority. Where did they get their authority? From Christ. So their successors have the authority of Christ. This is the only way Paul could tell Timothy to teach, to command, to rebuke those over whom he has authority. Paul didn't say command them to read the Bible and interpret it for themselves. He also gave to Timothy, as we see in 1 Timothy 5, verse 22, the authority to lay on hands. In other words, to ordain others. Only a bishop has this authority. Okay, quick recap before we talk about the Pope. Jesus founded one church. The church is authoritative. The church is visible church with doctrinal unity. The authority of the church is apostolic in nature. Comes from God the Father through Jesus Christ, through the apostles guided by the Holy Spirit. Apostolic authority is an authority characterized by the gift or the charism of infallibility in the areas of faith and morals. Apostolic authority, the authority of Christ himself, 
does not die with the apostles, but rather is passed on to the bishops, the successors of the apostles, through the formal laying on of hands. Now, I hope this has made sense so far and that everyone can see how this leads to the position of the Pope, to the office of the Pope. Who is the Pope? The Pope is the Bishop of Rome. So we can see that as a bishop, he is a successor of the apostles with all of the authority that that entails. But the Pope is not just the successor of any apostle, but of the apostle Peter, who was the first bishop of Rome. Why is that important? We'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16, verses 15 through 19. Jesus said to them, but who do, you, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Several things to note here, but I want to start first with the keys. Peter is given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. If I gave you the keys to my house, what would that signify? I'm trusting you with a lot of a lot of authority here. You, have, you now have authority over my house, my car, so forth and so on. Jesus gives Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys are the symbol of authority and power, but they also connote succession. After Peter died, did the keys just disappear? Are they laying around somewhere in the catacombs of Rome? No. Peter passed them on to his successor who then passed them on to his successor, and so forth and so on, down to our current Pope, John Paul II, who is the, uh, what, 264th, 66th Pope, something of that nature. John Paul II, the current holder of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. But let's take a closer look at the keys, a scriptural look. Turn to Isaiah, chapter 22. Isaiah, chapter 22, starting in verse 20. We see that Jesus was using the identical language in Matthew that Isaiah uses here. And in this passage from Isaiah, the Lord is talking to Shebna, who is the king's prime minister. And the Lord's not very happy with Shebna. Shebna, the prime minister, is over the king's household. And the Lord says, quote, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your girdle on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Authority is symbolized by the key. He is over the house of David. What is the new house of David? The church. In the Old Testament, the king's number one man, the prime minister, held the keys of the kingdom. He acted on the king's behalf. 
In the New Testament, the King, Jesus, is in heaven. Did he leave someone to act on his behalf? Yes, he left a prime minister, a holder of the keys, Peter and Peter's successors. And one more thing, Jesus says in this passage from Matthew that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Well, if Peter or any of his successors as Bishop of Rome have taught error, in other words, the head of the church leading the entire church into error, then wouldn't that mean that the gates of hell prevailed against the church? But that can't happen because Jesus promised that it wouldn't. Peter also has his name changed here from Simon to Peter, which means rock. And Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church, built on the rock of Peter. Some say that Jesus is really talking about Peter's confession of faith, where he says, you're the, the Christ, the son of the living God, that, he's, that Peter isn't really the rock. But that just doesn't make sense, grammatically or otherwise. Jesus spoke Aramaic. The Aramaic word for rock is kepha. So in Aramaic, Jesus would have said, you are kepha, and on this kepha, I will build my church. Peter is the rock. And what else does this passage tell us? That Peter received a special inspiration from God the Father to know what he knew about Jesus. If God can do that with Peter, can he not also do that with Peter's successors? Now, there are many people, many non-Catholics, who argue that Peter had no special place among the apostles. And therefore, this idea of the Pope is, is, is ridiculous. Yet, as we see in Matthew 16, Peter was given the keys of the kingdom. No other apostle was accorded that same honor. Also, in John 21, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus asked Peter three times, Do you love me? Each time, Peter says yes. And after each yes, Jesus says, Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Who is it that feeds and tends the sheep and the lambs? The shepherd. Jesus, here in John 21, is appointing Peter to shepherd his flock in his absence. And as we see in John 16, there will be one flock, one shepherd. Christ is the shepherd. But Peter and his successors, the popes, stand in Christ's place here on earth. Also, Peter's name is mentioned some 160 to 170 times in the New Testament. All the other apostles' names combined add up to only about 90 or 95. It's a measure of importance in the ancient writer's eyes. In the Acts of the Apostles, Peter is always the first to act. Read the first half of the Acts of the Apostles. It is all about Peter. Peter was the one who commanded that Judas be replaced. It was Peter who first said to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. In the gospel, Peter was the one who walked on water. And then turn to Luke chapter 22. We'll see something else about Peter. Luke chapter 22, verse 31 and 32. In the gospel of Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, and in the Greek... This is where it hurts to not be able to read the original Greek. 
In the Greek, this is a plural you, a y'all. Satan demanded to have y'all that he might sift y'all like wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular, Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you, Peter, have turned again, strengthen your brethren. Jesus is specifically praying for Peter to strengthen his brethren. Jesus prays that Peter's faith may not fail. Over and over again, we see Peter in a position of primacy. Peter, because of the power of the keys, was indeed put into a position of primacy over the other apostles. He was made the prime minister of God's kingdom here on earth, the church. That is what the Pope is today. The Pope holds the keys of the kingdom. He teaches with authority. He strengthens his brethren, the other bishops, and all of God's people. Whatever he binds on earth is bound in heaven. And whatever he looses on earth is loosed in heaven. And this binding and loosing pertains directly to his authority to teach infallibly regarding matters of faith and morals. Think about it. If God binds or looses in heaven, what Peter and his successors bind or loose on earth, then the binding and loosing on earth must, must be free from all error. If it's not, then God is putting his stamp of approval on error. God is binding error in heaven as good. And we know God won't do that. So that must mean that he protects the Pope, Peter, and his successors from teaching error. Now, one last scripture passage to look at regarding the Pope. Turn to Second Peter, the second letter of Peter, chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Peter says this, and he's talking to people, if you look at 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, he's talking to mature Christians here, people who have a very strong faith. Quote, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these things. And these things are the, the things that Peter has talked to them about in, previously in the letter. Therefore I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to arouse you by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me, and I will see to it that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. This passage is apparently saying that God has provided a way through Peter for Christians of all ages, because he's talking about at any time. Christians of all ages to be reminded of the truth. Here, Peter promises to see to it that Christians will always be reminded of and will at any time be able to recall the truths he is talking about, even after his death. But what did he do? In what way did he see to it? Keep one finger there on Second Peter and turn over to John 21. Turn back to John 21. These verses we just talked about, John 21, verses 15 through 19. This is where Jesus again is telling Peter, he's asking him three times, do you love me? Each time Peter says yes. And then Jesus says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And then he goes on to tell him, when you are old, 
you will stretch out your hands. And it says there, this Jesus said to show by what death he, Peter, was to glorify God. You will stretch out your hands. Peter, if you don't know, was crucified upside down. That's how he died. Notice the two connections between John 21 and 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 15. First, in John, we see the Lord showing Peter how Peter will die. And in 2 Peter, Peter is talking about the putting off of my body as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Jesus shows Peter how he is to die. Peter takes us back to that moment. Why? Also in John, Jesus is soon to return to the Father. In 2 Peter, Peter is talking about going to the Father, about putting off his body, about dying. Jesus, before he goes in John 21, does something. Jesus appoints Peter to shepherd his flock thereby making sure that his flock has a visible shepherd to feed it and tend it. And lo and behold, in 1 Peter, Peter, before going, says that he will do something to see to it that Christians will always be reminded of the truth and which will enable Christians at any time to recall the truths that he's talking about. Or you might say that he was going to make sure that the flock was always fed and tended. Again, I ask, what did Peter do to fulfill his promise in 2 Peter 1, verse 15? As a Protestant, I would have no answer to this question because nowhere does Scripture tell me. Nowhere. But as a Catholic, I have an answer that, at least to me, makes a whole lot of sense. Could the answer to my question be that Peter did as Christ did and appointed a shepherd to feed and tend the flock after his departure? That he passed on the keys of the kingdom of heaven that had been entrusted to him by Jesus Christ? Or did Peter leave the flock without a shepherd? Did he leave the flock to feed and tend itself? Would the Lord leave the sheep without a shepherd after Peter died? Jesus established a church through which he intended to make himself known to the world in order to bring all men unto salvation, in order to accomplish this mission of God's mercy, in order to bring the good news of salvation to all nations, the church must be, must be able to teach the truth at all times and, at all, and in all places. If the church is not protected from teaching error, then God's people would have absolutely no trustworthy foundation upon which to build their faith. They cannot simply turn to the Bible because the trustworthiness of the Bible depends completely upon the trustworthiness of the church. For men to be saved, they must know what is to be believed. For men to be saved, they must have a perfectly steady rock to build upon when it comes to the teaching of truth. For men to be saved, God gave his church the gift of apostolic succession. For men to be saved, God gave his church the gift of the Pope. For men to be saved, God gave the Pope and the bishops in union with the Pope the gift of infallibility so that God's people could know the truth and be set free. Thank you.
For more information or to obtain a copy of this talk, please check out the Bible Christian Society website at www.biblechristiansociety.com or send a letter to the Bible Christian Society, P.O. Box 424, Pleasant Grove, Alabama, 35127. Thank you, and may God bless you.